I remember the day the pipes all burst Love flowed out so fine, so unrehearsed Now you say we're through and it's the worst Baby, don't forsake me Tonight is for romance You say go home, don't make me I love you so, so won't you take me into the dance? Take me in, give a chance to me, baby. No. Take me into the prom, take me in, future mama, my child. Go home, see. Cause my love, you can't kill it, yeah, you're my fertility. With us today, we have two very special guests, David Selnick and Eric Svekar. Svekar? Svekar? Did I got it wrong again, didn't I, Eric? Long long A. Long A. Svekar. Eric Svekar is with us uh, on Broadway Radio. We're going to talk about their their podcast uh, musical, which is nine episodes that's available on iTunes. It's called Loveville High, but David... Why don't you say hello to the listeners? Hey, I'm David. And Eric? Thanks for having me. Hi, this is Eric. And so, David and Eric, thank you for taking some time out of your schedule on this hot, hot Saturday afternoon to talk about uh, your uh, show, Level High. So, you know, introduce yourself to... It's Zelnik. It's Zelnik. Zelnik. What did I say? I thought... I don't know. I didn't hear... Oh. I didn't hear exactly Zelnik. Did you? I... I'm so used to people mispronouncing my name that it sort of oh. name mispronunciation just flies right past me. Sorry. Hi. <laughs> no, so that's fine. So, David, uh, why don't you introduce yourself to Broadway Radio listeners? Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Where are you from and uh, what, what did you do to get to this point in your life where you're writing musicals? Great. Okay. So, hi, I'm David. I, uh, I was born in New York, but uh, my family brought me to South Jersey where I grew up. And they uh, they sort of raised me with the idea that I was being raised in exile from my real homeland, which was New York. <laughs> and uh, let's see, I, I I'm the youngest of three. I have an older sister and older brother. And with my older brother, my older brother and I uh, fell in love with musicals as little kids. And uh, you know, we we fell in love with Annie. We then saw Oklahoma and fell in love with all the old R and H shows. And actually, when we were eleven and thirteen, when I was eleven, we wrote our first song together. And uh, rather pretentiously called Epicurean, which, which gives you a sense of the kind of child that I had. Um, and uh, yeah, I always, uh, I definitely have one of those families that valued theater and the arts far more than making money or developing a reasonable profession. And I majored in acting. And then I was already writing musicals with my brother, who's a wonderful composer named Joe. And uh, we wrote all through our 20s. And then uh, we wrote a show called Yank, which is a gay World War II love story that played at the York in mm-hmm. 2010. And uh, now it's been done around the world. It was translated in Portuguese. It was done in Rio. It was done in London. And just uh, last week, Australia. And so... Uh, yeah, I, my whole life I've been writing musicals and obsessed about musicals, and uh, it's just, it's in the blood. All right. So, uh, what do your parents do? 
Uh, well, my parents are, are no longer in, uh, on this earth, but uh, my mom was uh, a copywriter in New York. She also worked for Sesame Street at a few points in her life. And my dad was a nuclear physicist, <laughs> which uh, somehow, I, 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 I mean, he, he loved what I do, but in my heart, I feel like I disappointed him a little with my absolute lack of aptitude for math and science. Um, but uh, he was from Vienna. He was born in Vienna, and definitely his, his side of the family was the really musical side and everyone learned how to play the piano and his 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 grandfather was the uh, the uh, the chief choral conductor of a synagogue in Vienna so he definitely had a great love and affection for music and musicals um, but that wasn't the path he took and then my brother who's a composer um, took that path finally and my brother's actually the one who taught me how to write lyrics because Either he didn't feel like he had the gift or he was too lazy because <laughs> lyric writing takes hours and hours and hours. And uh, it stuck. Huh. All right. So, uh, Eric, what about you? Um, uh, this is Eric. Uh, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, I was really the only artistic musical person in my family. I was a child prodigy pianist. I started taking lessons when I was five. Uh, and I was, uh, but I never actually won any of the competitions that I played. I, of course, did all those concerto competitions, you know, with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and never actually did very well in them because my interest was musical theater. Uh, and so it was always the struggle between should I be a classical pianist or, you know, should I be a musical theater actor? Uh, and so I ended up going to college as a voice major. I went to Indiana University and studied opera for a few years uh, and discovered that singing opera was pretty probably not where I was going to go, but my voice teacher realized that I was going to probably be a composer and a conductor and started teaching me from the standpoint of you're going to work with singers, so you should know what it's like for singers. And so uh, we sang a whole bunch of stuff that I would never actually sing in real life, you know, Wagner operas and things just to get a chance to see what it feels like for the singer so that one day when I, you know, would perhaps conduct these things, I would know what it was like. Uh, and so after college, I spent a few years in Chicago uh, doing piano bar. I was the one of the original front room pianists at Davenport's, uh, the piano bar in Wicker Park that is still going strong 20 years later. Uh, and I spent my summers at the Weston Playhouse at Weston, Vermont, doing summer stock mm -hmm. up there, which is where I got to know all sorts of people from New York and then finally made the move to New York to pursue my fortune as a <laughs> composer and uh, music director. Um, and I was lucky enough, I got to do the Roundabout Deaf West uh, revival of Big River a number of years ago, which was my Broadway debut, uh, which I got to conduct that several times, which was a thrill. Um, and in the meantime, I composed. At the time, I was my own lyricist uh, and my own book writer, which I was okay at. But as David has said, that's just such hard work. Um, so I wrote a musical called Caligula about the Roman emperor <laughs> that actually played at the first nymph. We were we actually premiered on the first night of the very first nymph. Wow! Uh, you and Morton played the lead, uh, and it was a thrill. We were the we were the Hamilton of off off Broadway for a few weeks in two thousand four. Um, but uh, it's a big show, so it kind of never, you know, we, we had big hopes and big ideas for it that never quite 
happened, which is, you know, a story that I'm sure lots of people with shows have experienced. Uh, and so I turned to music directing. I did the uh, revival of Jacques Brel as Alive and Well and Living in Paris at the Zipper Theater, which uh, the Zipper Theater, which is no longer there on 37th Street, which makes me very sad. It was one of my favorite places in the city. Um, but I got to do Jacques Brel, uh, which was just this lovely, brilliant, wonderful production uh, uh, and then um, I turned to, which really sort of got me a number of music directing, orchestration work. Um, and for the last several years, uh, my main source of income is I've been playing auditions for Broadway shows. I work with uh, all of the casting offices. Uh, and it started out as this job that I sort of felt like this is my equivalent of waiting tables. Uh, this is what I do to pay the bills. Uh, except I realized that I was getting to be in the room with people like Cy Coleman and Stephen Sondheim and Susan Stroman and uh, getting to watch directors like Bartlett Sher work with actors and started to realize this is actually a pretty cool gig. Um, you know, EPAs and chorus calls and, you know, days where, you know, it's, you know, 200 people singing 16 bars are tough, but I've also gotten to be, you know, the first person to play music, you know, like fresh, fresh from the pen of Janine Tesori. Uh, I played all the Shrek auditions. And so I got to play some things when they were just lead sheets uh, with no piano accompaniment. Um, and so, so yeah, so I spent the last several years sort of really getting to see uh, just amazing people at work and see just the the breadth of how many talented performers uh, we have in the city. Uh, it's uh, And then, of course, uh, and then I started working with David. Um, we were uh, paired up by Disney to do a project, and it was really the first time I'd worked with a lyricist who was not me, and I suddenly realized, much as Joe Zelnick must have all those years ago, that, wow, it's so much better when you have someone else doing that part of the job for you. I used <laughs> yeah. to wonder, would the songs feel like mine if I just did the tunes and not the lyrics? And it turns out, absolutely, I feel. And in yeah. fact, I like them better uh, because uh, I feel much less self-conscious about hearing my work performed in public with David's lyrics than I do with my own lyrics. So that's been a wonderful thing to, to discover. Yeah, and we have, a, we have a great energy working together, I think. So it's been, it's been, a, it's been a joy. We, st- we worked on the Disney show, I guess, Nine years ago now, yes. uh, we basically got hired to adapt Peter Pan into a Peter Pan Jr. Uh, show, and it's been done thousands of times. Thousands of times. And uh, it definitely was daunting to jump into uh, such a well-loved, uh, well-loved and many-told story like Peter Pan. Um, and then after that, we were looking for other stuff to work on. And uh, we, we worked on a play that I wrote where we wrote several songs that went on in Chicago a few years ago. And uh, then uh, I, I got a dream of about Loveville, so here we are. Wow! So and you, and you uh, may occasionally hear a dog uh, chiming out in the in the background. The, my, what's my, the dog's name? My corgi is is in here with us listening. So <laughs> the dog's name is Rory. Yes, he's very. He likes to make himself known. <laughs> Rory, like Gilmore Girls, Rory. Yes, like Rory Calhoun. Oh, okay. <laughs> if you know that episode of The Simpsons, where, where, where Mr. Burns's heart gets warmed by the puppies reminding him of Rory Calhoun, so. Well, uh, I wanted to flash back to Yank for a second uh, because sure. um, 
Uh, Yank, I, I went back and looked in our database for Broadway Radio, and it was really one of the first things that we reviewed uh, down at the York Did many, you like many, it? many, many years ago. I didn't see it, but uh, Matthew Murray and Peter Felicia saw it, and they liked it a lot, and it was uh, one of our picks of the year. Uh, Yay! And then, uh, and then you guys had a workshop production, and what's it like, uh, you know... You know, having a hot off Broadway show and then a workshop production, um, and then what happened to Yank? Yeah, so y- Yank Yank is an epic story. It's and it's one. Uh, it's very close to my heart. It's a show that I care about a lot. And uh, it's uh, let's see, we we were thrilled by the response in 2010, and at that moment, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was still the law of the land, mm-hmm. and there was no gay marriage. And so, while while Yank is not a terribly political show on one on one hand. On the other hand, uh, the the fact that it was existing and telling the story of, of gay soldiers during World War II allowed it to have extra meaning at the time. And then there was so much energy behind it, and they brought in uh, David Cromer to helm the the workshop for a Broadway run. And uh, we basically spent 18 months digging back into it, I think in many ways making it an even better, richer piece. Um, and then twice we almost made it to Broadway, and then we did not. And in retrospect, it was right before, I think, a few things broke where, where Broadway really started embracing tons of new musicals, things like Gentleman's Guide or Fun Home that were a little bit more didn't weren't necessarily catalog shows they weren't necessarily based on big movie titles and uh i feel like we were just before that at a point when writing a gay world war ii love story with swing music by two relatively unknown people even with david cromer at the helm although he hadn't won his tony yet uh was a tough sell and so in retrospect i'm really proud that we almost (laughs) got there based on all those odds. But then we needed to uh, record the album uh, because we were sort of left high and dry after that collapsed. So Joe and I did a Kickstarter and raised the money, and the album is out through PS Classics. And that led to a lot of productions. It led to uh, Manchester, UK, and then London production in 2017, and the translation into Portuguese, and the Australian production. So now I feel like a sense of contentment that even though we didn't make Broadway, or maybe I should say haven't made Broadway yet on that show, that it has found its audience around the world. So it it feels like a joyful success to me now. I'm glad you said haven't made to Broadway yet, because, um, you know... You never know. <laughs> yeah. You know... Uh, I mean, th- th- things take stranger journeys now than they used to. It used to be like, it was very linear, and now, uh, now you never know. And uh, if there's a moment when it's the right the right team and the right cast and the right right theater and the right moment. I still think Yank, even in this world, with I mean, certainly in 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 the America we live in right now, it's equality is not a done deal, and and putting gay people back into the history of World War II still has political meaning, and it and also any story of bravery and courage from anyone is needed in these sometimes really dark times. So uh, your experiences in Yank, uh, was was that the first uh, one of your properties that um, seemed to be heading in that trajectory? Uh, For me, yeah. I've been, been writing since school, and that, that was the one where 
all of a sudden I looked at the audience and was like, oh, this is what hasn't happened during my other <laughs> shows. <laughs> the, I, I see what it's like when you, when you really have people responding in a profound way. And, you know, Yank might not be for everyone, but for the people it hits, it really hits, it hits home. And that's, uh, that's changed how I write. It's changed what I go for. That's really interesting. And uh, I'm trying to think back in my mind if, you know, 2010, 2011, uh, I, I, I'm going to guess here that running a Kickstarter to fund your album is, was a pretty original idea at the time. I mean, I think a few other people have been doing it. We didn't feel like we invented the wheel, but uh, it did feel like the first wave of that sort of crowdsourcing because we, we honestly, uh, we made a profit off the off-Broadway show, but that the producers quite wisely at the time funneled that into the Broadway workshops. Mm-hmm. So basically when, when that didn't go through, we, we, we had a lot of love surrounding the piece, but no actual support, and we didn't know what to do. So that was the only thing we could do uh, because, alas, we were not, uh, we did not have uh, a wealthy parents to, to help bankroll it, which there's nothing wrong with, but that just wasn't our story. And uh, we, I remember launching the, the Kickstarter that day and just wondering whether anyone was going to give and wondering, you know, I knew, that, I knew, I knew maybe 100 people loved it, but I didn't know whether 500 people loved it. And I certainly was amazed that we got the final donation of $5,000 from someone who never saw it, who was uh, married to a a man who's married to a woman, and he just read about it and was moved by it and wanted to make it happen. And uh, it's very humbling when people reach out like that. So let's talk about... um your project, Love, Loveville High, a prom and nine musical podcast, which I feel is, again, on the cutting edge, certainly not the first musical to introduce itself in podcast form through, through uh, free downloads. But tell us, you know, how the both of you came to the uh, plan to put out Loveville High in podcast form. I mean, a few things came together. I think we a part of part of us wanted to just seize the means of production and <laughs> actually do something that wasn't wasn't dependent on other people saying yes. Right. <laughs> yeah, to do something that, as we say, wouldn't be a pitch for another thing. You know, not, it's not a demo. It's not something that we're trying to get produced. This is it. This is we're going to write something. We're going to make it, and we're going to put it out into the world uh, and sort of you know eliminate the middleman as much as we can. And just because uh, it seems like you spend so long in that pre-production, is it going to happen? Yes, no, maybe. Uh, so this seemed like uh, a good way uh, that podcasting uh, was available. Sorry, the dog is being uh, that. Uh, podcasting was a good way of distribution that now there's a means to actually get this material out to people. Um, And I had actually, when I first moved to New York, I moved to go to NYU where I studied recording and sound design. So I've uh, spent a lot of time working in the studio. I've worked on a number of cast albums, uh, both on stuff I've music directed and also uh, other projects as well. And so I feel very comfortable in uh, the recording element. And I sort of, and I, you know, I'm someone who grew up uh, not seeing a lot of professional theater, uh, so cast albums were the way I learned Broadway. Uh, that was sort of, um, I don't think I 
owned a single non-musical theater recording until I went to college. Uh, and so absorbing these stories uh, purely, you know, in an oral format uh, was very natural to me. And so the idea of doing something expressly for, uh, you know, for audio theater was very exciting to me, uh, just in and of itself. Yeah, it, it's, um, it's, when I, even when I'm in a theater, to me, if I can hear the actor's voice clearly and I can feel the scene and feel the song, I personally don't care that much about the visuals. I know, I know visuals are important. I know for some people the spectacle of Broadway is really, really meaningful and dazzling. But for me, if I can really hear the choices the actor is making and really feel surprising, hopefully beautifully written text and beautifully written songs, that that's why I go in a theater. That that the, the human voice is for me why I'm still in a theater. And I feel like a podcast, much more than than a movie, can really capture that feel of just intimately listening. So it's a very it's a very it's a very, very powerful format to me. So uh, explain again your means to the ends of putting out Lovell High. It, it, you know, you, you didn't use this as a promotional vehicle. Then certainly you brought in a, a number of people. Uh, <laughs> you have Catherine Allison, right. Harrison Chad, uh, you had Jay Armstrong Johnson, yep. Helly Kilgore. Uh, you have I know. Allie Stroker. You have Isaac Ryan Powell, Redman. Allie Stroker. Yeah, I mean, I mean so... I mean, we're not against it going big. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, what we mean is that, like, um, if if we had just decided to write Loveville High as a show, A, it would have probably come out a bit differently, but then we would have then been showing it to producers, showing it to theaters, trying to raise money for a production that would be quite expensive, no matter how cheaply you want to do it. There's 13 actors in it. And we would have been uh, that that terrible sinking feeling of powerlessness. And this way, uh, for relatively little money uh, and for a relatively quick rehearsal process for some amazing people who would never do a small show right. off-Broadway, uh, we got a chance to actually create the thing itself. And I think that's what feels like seizing the means of production. Like, well, we're going to tell a 10-minute story and ultimately 90 minutes of story – and it's going to be what it is. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be everything. We, we're going to pour our hearts and our souls into this thing, and then it's going to be something that lives in the world. And if more happens, and we hope more happens with it, that's great. But if more doesn't happen with it, we've made the thing. We're not writing a blueprint. The way when you're writing a play or a musical, you feel like you're writing a blueprint for something else. And here, we're actually creating the thing. Which so- is you uh, ha- have you guys ever done a uh, a live presentation of this, like a fifty four below Loveville High or something like that? Well, we just on my birthday yes. did a concert of all the songs. We didn't do the scenes. We did the twelve mm-hmm. twelve major songs from Loveville at the York Theater. It was a one night event that we filmed. And when we uh, when we finish this interview, we're actually going to continue mixing down the videos so that we can post them. And uh, there were uh, some of the people from the original podcast are in it giving amazing performances, and there are some people giving amazing performances who are brand new to the piece. So um, I have a dream that it could be done all around the country and the world. We already had some interest, but but again, I love that. Instead of having to come to New York necessarily to see Haley Kilgore, you actually get a piece of something equal to someone, you know, this was downloaded in Singapore. That person gets 
to mm-hmm. experience Haley Kilgore the same way I do or you do, which is not the case when she's the star of Once on this Island. There, it's like somewhere else something is happening that I can maybe get glimpses of, but I can't see. And so that's kind of, that's kind of meaningful to me, too. When did you uh, do the original recordings of Level High? Uh, we started recording last summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was actually up in the Berkshires uh, doing a production of Hair, and I would do the Thursday night Hair performance, jump in my car with the dog, and drive down, and we'd record to brilliant, amazing people Friday morning, uh, and then I'd jump back into the car and go back up to do the Friday night performance of Hair. Uh, and so we kind of did that through the summer and through the fall. Just uh, Yeah, we could we could have started releasing probably in September or October, but we, we both wanted to, we kept getting more and more excited, and Eric especially, with adding instruments and making it a, a sound like a full band. And also, I have a friend named Rachel Chansey, who is a Foley artist on in Hollywood, which are the people who do all the yeah. the amazing sound effects. And uh, she basically just jumped in and said, let me do it and for free, which, and, <laughs> which yes, is amazing. Which is, and the work she did is just amazing. Uh, if, you could hear the, if you could hear the episodes before her and after her, it's, uh, it's pretty impressive how it makes it really come alive. Yeah, it's and it's not even just, you know, the actions of, you know, footsteps and things. She's able to create the whole environment. You know, we have a scene that takes place in a courtyard at night. And so she was able to, you know, get the sounds of the crickets and the cicadas and the wind just right with the traffic just sort of off in the distance that you sometimes hear. Uh, the first scene takes place. Uh, they're driving to the prom in uh, one guy's pickup truck. And there was a moment where she actually had him stop the car and pull it over, which I don't think was in the the script. script. She just sort of saw it in her head. And it actually, it's such a great moment because it really focuses it. You hear, you know, the engine stops, you know, you've forgotten that you're even hearing the engine. And then they have this really intense scene for a moment. And then later he starts it up again and they keep going. And it just added so much. It brought it to life. It felt like uh, suddenly I could see it in a way that I couldn't before. And uh, the whole time, it was always so exciting when she would send back. uh, Because I'd send off the rough mixes the rough edit of the episode and then she would lay everything in and send it all back and so it was like christmas morning nine times to see what she had done and then to be honest we when we when we started this we thought well you know we 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 both know a fair amount of of awesome theater people uh but they're also a little bit older Mm because you know we're not 22 and uh and so we wanted to make sure we launched it right when we realized this many amazing people had said yes to us and we're doing yes. this kind of amazing work. So we ma- we wanted to make sure it was both uh, both uh, polished and also make sure that we weren't putting it out in the middle of November or December when no one when when the season is 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 like just on, people on, are. on steroids and everyone's yes. like going to holiday parties. So we waited till January and uh, that's when we launched. So a little spoiler alert here for listeners. Uh, If you don't want to be spoiled, skip ahead about a minute or so, I'm guessing here. But I wanted to mention specifically about the rooftop scene when she pushes him off the roof. (laughs) And, And I... You know, I'm listening to a podcast here, and I realize everything, but it was so intense, and I was like, oh, she's going to push him off the roof. She's going to do... Oh, she did. (laughs) (laughs) You know, she's already done the math, so she knows he's not going to be too hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Math. It all comes back to math. Yeah, I mean, so one of the (gasps) things... 
one of the things I set up for myself when I started writing was, I was like, all right, as a challenge, because they're only going to be 10 minute scenes. Uh, I want each each to be incredibly high stakes because they're 17 and they're in love and everything is the most high stakes ever. And sometimes that's uh, within the scene, but sometimes in, in scene four where I believe that happens, it's like, well, they could have a fight on the roof, but if I really want to raise the stakes, they got to have a fight while he's standing on the edge of the roof and we need mm. to have that threat that there might be real bodily harm <laughs> going on. Um, <laughs> And, and they also would always decide like we need a reveal, we need a reversal. I had these little yeah. little yeah. little techniques for myself to make sure each episode popped and I hope it worked. So the question about when you recorded was uh uh leading me to you worked with a pre Tony Award winner, Ali Stroker. Mm-hmm. Yes we did. <laughs> so yeah. I mean how did Ali get involved in the project? Well, she basically the smartest decision I think I made, aside from us working together and oh. having Rachel Chancy, is we hired Michael Cassara, the casting director, ah. and and just said, you know what, we have a few ideas of who we could offer it to. And he said, well, what if we, since this is about people on the edge of high school beginning their real lives, what if we chose people who are about to make it or just on the edge of their high school part of their career and about to launch into the life part of their career? Mm. And uh, and I was like, sure, I mean, yeah. tr- try. I mean, if you want to offer it to Haley Kilgore, we can do that. And then she said yes, and then, then it was like, well, let's just offer it to everyone we think should be as amazing. And um, I had seen Allie in um, in in the Deaf West. No, in, in uh, Spring Awakening. Spring Awakening, yeah. Yes. And uh, and actually knew someone who knew her and have been a fan of hers for I guess t- two years now. And so she immediately leaped to mind as exactly the kind of person who can tell a story with her voice, especially. And so you know we were lucky to get her and. Uh, it's just a question of when you follow your own gut about who's talented and who you want to work with. It's just gratifying when the rest of the world sees it too. I mean, she she wasn't she wasn't a nobody when we got her, but now right. she's huge. Yes. <laughs> uh, J. Armstrong Johnson. Uh, he, he's a very very funny person, and so uh, you know he is not in that young set. I wouldn't consider him in the high school uh-huh. thing. But yet you brought him into that world, and uh, what was your thinking on that? Um, well, you, Eric actually knew Jay. Uh, yes, um, Jay and I did a production of Hairspray up in Western Vermont. I think it was one of, if not his first professional job. Uh, he was, of course, Link, uh, and Marissa <laughs> Perry was our Tracy, uh, and Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman came up to see it because we were actually the first regional production, and they liked Marissa so much that they immediately made her the standby for Tracy on Broadway, and by December she had taken over the role full-time. So it was this uh, 42nd Street come-to-life story of where she was doing the role in Summerstock, and less than six months later she was doing it on Broadway. Uh, And so I knew Jay from that, and Jay is someone who our paths just kept crossing over the years. Uh, I was in the orchestra for a chorus line at City Center just recently, which Jay was in. Uh, so he's kind of... He'd been on our list the whole time. Yeah. And, uh, we saw no reason to, to not, you know, not ask him, even though he's a little bit further in his career than some of the other people. 
And, and of course, and he came in and was, and had that voice that yeah. he uses in the pod. He was just brilliant. One and he, done. <laughs> he exceeded all of our expectations and just came in and nailed it the way that, well, I mean, they all just came in and nailed it. It was really sort of humbling to have these amazing people just, you know, giving their time and energy to this and doing just, and clearly just throwing themselves into it a hundred percent. Yeah. So a little uh, minor trivia here. Uh, you recorded down a PPI recording series with Chip Fabrizi, uh, and Chip Chip has done a tremendous amount of uh, Broadway uh, recording work. Uh, PPI used to be in uh, in Midtown as well, near uh, Penn Station before they moved down to Soho. Um, but uh, you had. Uh, a tremendous amount of uh, experience there running the board. Uh, and so it's not surprising that uh, that you guys were able to turn out such a quality product. I mean, the, the podcast is extraordinarily good. And you had mentioned before that uh, you were adding instruments and you recorded them separately on tracks because they all sounded like they were in one room together. Uh most of the most of the scenes we recorded with both of the singers in the room. There were a couple of scenes where we actually did record them separately, and uh, David did the other half of the scene, and then we spliced the two performances together. Uh, but when they came in to record, the orchestrations were not finished yet. So they're mostly they, just piano. I think yeah, they would do it too. Mostly just recording to piano, bass, and maybe a scratch drum track. Scratch uh, yeah. and. And then we, and then I took it, and we did a couple of sessions where we brought in a horn section. Uh, yeah, the, the horn. The, my memory is that the the brass basically was in the same room. It just yes. they weren't in the same room at the same time as the actors. Yes, we had yeah the trumpet, trombone, and saxophone all came in and uh, laid down their parts together uh, in one session. And we had we did the cello and the violin separately here at my apartment. Uh, it was, uh, we even recorded some of the dialogue in David's apartment when we realized we needed to do some pickups. Uh, right. so it's, uh, we kind of... Technology is pretty, pretty amazing what it can do now. I remember the first time I ever made a demo in a studio and we were using tape and we were using, yeah. well, we weren't using mm-hmm. tape, but we were using like, yes. y- there was an amazing amount of layering that was possible and an amazing amount that wasn't possible. And now you have so many more options to, to do things like, well, we just recorded these six lines in my apartment. Can we make it sound like it was in the same session? And by and large, you can. And Chip is someone I've worked with on several projects before. So it was great to be able to just, so we knew that... We, we knew what we were getting with him and knew, and especially once we realized who we were using, uh, you know, we didn't want to invite future Tony winners over to my apartment to <laughs> you know, record these in my living room. Uh, we sort of figured, okay, we need to, we need to up our game. And so he was Chip, also a great first audience to be like, when he started laughing at a take, we're like, yes. well, that's a good take. Yes. Then. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about your orchestra for a second. Uh, your musicians were outstanding. So tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yes, uh, they're all uh, people who I've worked with before or uh, <laughs> friends of people that I've worked with before. Yeah, so Adam Wolf was our drummer, who's someone I've worked with on a number of projects. He actually played uh, Your Good Man Charlie Brown at the York. 
a couple summers ago. He was uh, the original drummer for uh, the musical of Midsummer Night's Dream that I wrote that we did uh, up in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. Uh, so he's just uh, an example of someone who's he's just one of my go-to people. Uh, I know exactly what he brings to the table. I'm comfortable with him. I barely have to give him any instruction. I just he listens to it and knows exactly what the drums need to be. Uh, the horns, uh, again, uh, our trumpet player, uh, one of our two trumpet players, uh, Louise Berenger, was someone who also played Midsummer Night's Dream for me. Uh, our reed player is a guy named Bill Todd, who was actually, who subbed in the orchestra for a musical called Mary Harry that we did at the York a couple uh, summers ago and was just great. He's someone whose whose name I kept because I knew he was someone I would probably want to use again and I called him up uh, and he brought along a trombone player um, and a second trumpet player. Uh, so... Yeah, and the, and the cellist, I think, is the one I brought in because yes. Alison Seidner, Alison Seidner uh, has who, been a friend for years and she's wonderful and it turned out that two of the songs, I think, Sparkle Like Bowie and... And Turn the Page. And became sort of duets between the singer and the cellist. Yes. Um, uh, the violin was uh, uh, a girl named uh, Gurkshia Aram, who, again, also played Midsummer for me, and uh, is one... She subs the national tour of Hamilton. So we recorded her between uh, arriving from one city and flying out to another city to uh, go out with the tour. Um, and so, yeah, as a music director, um, I, you know, I love working with musicians. They're like actors to directors, I think. You know, when you find a group of people who sort of get your style, both, you know, both the musical style and just the way of working, uh, you know, it's, it is such an intimate thing to be, you know, doing new music when you're still kind of figuring it out. And so when musicians uh, can bring their creativity and their sensitivity to it, uh, I just feel like it adds so much to it. Um, in a way, I kind of wish they could have recorded their vocals with everything behind it so they could, so the singers would right. have known. They sort of had to trust that it was all going to be filled out. And well, the, 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 the beauty of working on something in a theater is you, is, is if you've been through the process is you watch the actors start to really embody it and relax in their bodies into what they're doing and you get a very subtle performance with this we often would just have one rehearsal and they'd be in and they were amazing but the advantage to this is they could try it five different ways but then we get to decide <laughs> which yes. the take is. Sure. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting balance between the two of them. Yes. Well, and um, David, I think you found that uh, editing the audio for the scenes was an opportunity to do some tweaking to the writing itself. Exactly. I sort of, I sort of now want to just record rehearsals of my shows and then tweak them and then go back with rewrites <laughs> because you, you you get to try everything. You're like cut this line, cut this word, put the word back. Oh, wait, can we have a longer beat before this line? Okay, now it makes sense. Yes. And uh, you get to... It's probably the joy that filmmakers have, but it's, right. not, it's not a joy that we tend to know very well in theater. <laughs> and, and as David said, uh, when you've been rehearsing, you're capturing a performance that's uh, had some time to develop, whereas um, what we were doing, the actors were sort of having to go on instinct, having to sort of make guesses about the world. Um, so I think that... Uh, and sometimes we'd rewrite, I'd rewrite in the, in the thing, like, try saying it this way, try saying it this way. And then the best take wouldn't be the line you want. There, there, there was a lot of, you know, playing around, but always, 
always you would know in the studio when the heat had clicked or yeah. to mix metaphors when 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 it <laughs> when it, when you finally were getting something real you could just feel the words flying flying outside of themselves and uh, uh i'm trying to explain that gut intuition you get when something's working and i'm not i'm not succeeding but it's uh it you can tell when it's landing and when it's not yes and that's where you where you write little notes and you're like this take <laughs> sure so I want to thank you so much for both uh, spending so much time and talking about Lovell High and about you and your careers. Uh, for our listeners, you can catch up with Lovell High on iTunes uh, and download the whole thing, or you can go to their website, lovellhigh.com. All of that information is going to be in the show notes. It's a easily digestible uh, nine, ten-minute episodes of their uh, of their musical. It's a great thing. You can also catch them on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, and I'll, I'll put all that stuff in the show notes. Um, and the YouTube, uh, will that have the uh, videos from the con- con- uh, the concert coming up soon? Absolutely. Right now it's just uh, sort of a placeholder where the nine episodes uh, podcasts are up without any images, mm-hmm. really. But yeah. uh, within the next few weeks, for sure, 12 songs from the, the York concert will be up. And then we're hoping, you know, people start doing it at 54 Below and around the country and the world, and we get to... You know, they send us their videos, and we get to put them up, and uh, and uh, we take over the world. <laughs> Great. Well, David, Eric, thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. Uh, what? You take one guy, you take one girl, add them up and you're done. It isn't one plus two times twenty. It isn't me plus you plus girls on the Till they collide. Physics? Keep up with me. But when two atoms split up too quick, boom, my boy, you better hide. If you recall your laws of Newton, you run away from love and life. He's a downhill slide. Yeah, you think you're pretty smart. Your paper's reek of rules and rigor. Biology. 